Uh, well, we are in a sermon series going through the uh, book of 1 Corinthians. And essentially, I want to remind you that it's not really a book. It's not a, a theological essay. It's actually a letter, which means that we are reading someone else's mail from almost 2,000 years ago. It's a spiritual uh, letter. Is, I believe it was inspired by the Holy Spirit through the Apostle Paul. It was written in 53 AD, which is older than you. Um, and it's written to people in a city called Corinth in Greece and the other side of the world, people that spoke a very different um, language than you, different culture than you. And yet, as we go through this, and we're in week three, chapter three right now, uh, you're going to be amazed at how relatable this letter written to these people are to our day, our time, our church. And um, I, hope that, I hope that there's some things that you can relate to, even as we get into chapter three. And if you've read ahead, you'll see that Paul hits the ground running, and he doesn't really say nice things today in chapter three. But again, he's talking to the Corinthians, the Corinthians and maybe to you, but uh, maybe not. All right, so why don't you stand with me, and uh, we're going to read God's Word. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, we're going to read verses 1 through 17 today. It starts out like this, and like he does almost every chapter. He's like, brothers and sisters, he reminds us that we're a part of a family. He says, brothers and sisters, I could not address you as people who live by the Spirit, but as people who are still worldly, mere infants in Christ. I gave you milk, not solid food, for you weren't ready for it. Indeed, you are still not ready. You're still worldly. For since there is jealousy and quarreling among you, are you not worldly? Are you not acting like mere humans? For when one says, oh, I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, are you not mere human beings? What after all is Apollos? What is Paul? Only servants through whom you came to believe, as the Lord has assigned to each his task. I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God has been making it grow. So neither one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but only God who makes things grow. The one who plants and the one who waters have one purpose, and they will each be awarded according to their own labor. For we are co-workers in God's service. You are God's field, God's building. By the grace God has given me, I laid a foundation as a wise builder, and someone else is building on it. But each one should build with care, for one can lay, for no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. If anyone builds on this foundation, using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, their work will be shown for what it is, because the day will bring it to light. It will, it will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each person's work. If what has been built survives, the builder will receive a reward. If it's burned up, the builder will suffer loss, but yet will be saved, even though only as one escaping through the flames. Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in your midst? If anyone destroys God's temple... God will destroy that person, for God's temple is sacred, and you together are that temple. Lord, I, um, I thank you for your word. I thank you for this letter written almost 2,000 years ago. I thank you that it still speaks to us today. I thank you that it is uncanny how 
how much it speaks to us today in our current world, in our current culture. I pray that you would um, help us to apply it, not just hear it. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You can be seated. So uh, you may remember that, that Paul last week defined what it means to be spiritual. That was the title of my message, to be spiritual. And we said that being spiritual wasn't, it didn't have necessarily to do with the things that you do and the things that you don't do. It doesn't have to do with the, the list of do's and don'ts that, that religion offers us. It's like, well, don't do this, and Jesus likes it when you do this, but don't do this. Essentially, Paul defines spirituality by the, the fact that we are filled with, led by, and empowered by the Holy Spirit. That you are spiritual when you are filled with, led by, and empowered by the Holy Spirit. And so it begs the question that I want to pose to you today. It's the title of my message, which is this. How is your spiritual life? How's your spiritual life? This is a question that like people like me with clerical collars and up on stages with microphones will ask people, or maybe as you sit across at a Taco Bell, a good friend will ask you like, how is your spiritual life? And, and we ask it in different ways. Sometimes it's like, how's your personal relationship with Jesus? How is your prayer life? How's your spiritual walk? Essentially, if we're going to get down to it and put a lot of words to it, it means this. Like, how is your personal devotional faith, faith life with Jesus? Like, what, how is your spiritual life? And if we're honest, um, well, if I were to really, truly, honestly answer that and you were too, you'd probably say, well, it, uh, it's good. It could be better, Right? I mean, nobody, no, if you ask somebody, like, how's your spiritual life? Nobody's, like, amazing, like, awesome. I'm, I'm, hitting, I'm hitting on all cylinders. Everything's awesome. My, 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 my faith life is, is amazing. My prayer life is red hot. Like, I, I love it. Absolutely. Like, you should be jealous of how awesome my faith life is. Like, like nobody says that. Everybody's like, ah, oh, go, I'm good, 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 good. Could be better, but always good. You know what I mean? Because we're always at that place where it's like, I know where it could be, should be, and but I'm, I'm, not, I'm not there yet, so I'm trying to, to make my, my spiritual life a little bit better than it is. And, and if we're going to be honest, in our culture, the part of the problem is that we see our spiritual life as something different from our secular life, our everyday life, right? There's these two compartments. We're good at compartmentalizing, and so we have like our spiritual compartment and and sacred compartment, holy compartment, and then we have our everyday life compartment, our secular compartment, um, our normal life. Our spiritual life is for things that, like, when we engage in sacred things, like holy things, like going to church, listening to Christian music, praying, right? Like, spiritual life things, right? These, reading our Bible, these are, these are the spiritual life things. And then there's the everyday life things, and this is we engage in, in secular things, un, unholy or not necessarily holy things, things that we think that, like, okay, well, like, going to work, um, you know, going to school, consuming media, spending money, all of those things are everyday life things. And if we're honest, our everyday life is a much bigger compartment of our life than our spiritual life. Huge, hugely different. But if you asked Paul, hey, Paul, how's your spiritual life? He would have looked at you like you had three heads. He would have been like, what, what, do, you, what do you mean? 
how's my, how's my spiritual life? Because to Paul, we read this as we dig down into his letter. Like, to Paul, there was no difference between sacred and secular. There was no difference between, like, well, this is holy and this is just everyday life. To Paul, everything was spiritual. To Paul, his faith worked into everything. It was like spaghetti noodles. Like, there was no way of extracting it. There was no way of separating things out and compartmentalizing and saying, well, well, this is what I do when, when I go to church, and this is my hour and a half of, of, of my holy time, and then this is what I do the rest of my time, and I don't understand what this would speak into this. Or These things are completely separate. And Paul is confronting the Corinthian church essentially by saying, like, hey, y'all have relegated the Holy Spirit to operate within a box. Like, you, you've created this spiritual holy box of, of this once-a-week gathering or whatever this is, and you've created that the Holy Spirit can only work here, but he, but he doesn't necessarily have to speak into or to work into everyday life, into everyday circumstances. Like, and you've made these two different things different. And... They did spiritual things with spiritual places with other spiritual people, but the other 95% of their life was different, separated. And, and, I, and I think that the, the, the problem is, is that it's probably not that different from us in the way that we view our spiritual life. In chapter 3, Paul defines for us what it looks like to be followers of Jesus, what, what that life should look like. And he gives us three metaphors, and you might have picked them out as we were reading down through verses 1 through 17. Essentially, what he's going to tell us is this. The church, you are a family, you are a garden, and you are a temple. You are a family, church, church, you are, you are a garden, and church, you are a temple. And so I just want to run down through those three things, because that's what he pretty much outlines for us and to the Corinthian church. And the first thing he says is this, the church is a family. And the goal of a family is to grow up. And he says it in no uncertain terms. And he's actually not even nice about it. He's not nice at all about it. We'll re I'll read it for you in verse one. It kind of starts out on a bad foot. He says, brothers and sisters, well, I, I guess it's a good foot. He's like, hey, y'all, we're brothers and sisters, so I can say whatever I want, right? Brothers and sisters. I could not address you as people who live by the Spirit, but as people who are still worldly. If the New King James Version says the word carnal, you're carnal, you're still of the flesh. And then he says, you're mere infants in Christ. And so Paul is right off the bat making a distinction, and he's not saying, hear what he's not saying. He's not saying, hey, you, all you people in church, some of you are Christians and some of you aren't. He's saying, no, there's two different types of Christians. He's saying that there's mature Christians and then there's immature Christians. He just like lays it out there. There's, there's mature and then there's immature. And the goal of a family, in any family that has kids, is that we have children who don't stay children. They grow up. Amen? Um, I loved it when my kids were little. I loved it when they were little kids. And, and Google and Facebook send me back there all the time with pictures. I'm like, remember when? I'm like, shut up, right? Because like, when my kids were little, I, I, I missed that and I loved that. But I would be concerned if they just stayed little, Right? Like, one day, my son hopes to be taller than me. It probably won't happen, but, like, he thinks maybe if I stand on my toes, I'll be taller than my dad. But if he didn't, if he just stayed as a little guy, 
after like 16 years and he's still wearing a diaper, be like, dude, it's time to what? Grow up, right? It, it used to be cute. And now it's just like, seriously, you're wiping yourself now. I'm done. I am not doing this anymore, right? The goal of a family is to grow up, which means and why it's weird when, when people don't grow up. Like, I'm not looking forward for my kids to, to leave home. Like, I, I, I'm not. I'm not one of those. Some of you are like, don't let the door hit you. You know what I mean? Like, I'm not looking forward to that. But here's the thing. Nobody, nobody looks at their 40-year-old living in their basement, playing video games all day, in between jobs for the past decade as endearing. Nobody's like, oh, you're so cute. That's awesome. You know? No. Everyone's like, there's something wrong. Like, you should be growing up. And it's the same way when you look at this is what Paul's essentially saying, the same thing about your spiritual walk. He's like, when a brother or a sister in Christ doesn't seem to be growing, something's not right. Like, you, you should be growing. Like, if you started here and you stayed here and nothing changed, like, I'm concerned because you should be moving forward. Proverbs 27, 6, I've read this to you before. I love it. It says, wounds from a friend can be trusted but an enemy multiplies kisses. The reality is, is that it, it isn't loving to never challenge somebody to grow into all that they're supposed to be, all that they can be. It isn't loving for me to just be like, oh, I just, I just want you to stay small, never grow up, never, never become an adult, just always stay a perpetual child. It's, it, it isn't loving to make excuses for bad behavior and be like, oh, I understand. Your mom put your diapers on too tight, and that's why you are the way you are, and you don't need to change, and don't worry. We'll just accommodate for it. It isn't loving to do that. Like a true friend, and this is what Proverbs 27 is saying, like a true friend will help point out your blind spots. A true friend will, will come alongside you because they want to see you grow. A true friend will tell you when you have a booger hanging out your nose. Right? Be like, dude, you got, you got rock. I mean, you, an enemy just lets it hang. An enemy doesn't say anything. An enemy just makes funny and laughs. An enemy snickers, right? An enemy, oh, you're just so great. You're so great. A true friend comes along and is like, dude, you got to, gone. You got to take care of that thing. Because, why? Because they care? Because they care. This is why I love it when he says, wounds from a friend can be trusted. That's a friend that you can trust. And sometimes it hurts. And sometimes it's like, man, well, uh, oh, okay. I wasn't expecting that. Like, it's one thing for us to grow old in, as a Christian. But Paul is essentially saying to the Corinthian church, it's time to grow up. It's time to grow up. And, and this, is, this is difficult. Um, I, I want to address something because I think it, it, it applies. If we're going to kind of bring things into fast forward into our current culture. And I think that this is the same thing that they were dealing with back in the days of the Corinthian church is that there are, um, it doesn't help. It doesn't help that essentially we, we have some churches that in an attempt to add followers have communicated that you can receive forgiveness for your sin and go to heaven but you don't have to follow Jesus. Like you can, you can just 
say a prayer and he'll forgive you of all your sin and you get to go to heaven. But like if following him is for the serious people, following him is for the professionals, following him is for the, the, the paid Christians, like the pastors and leaders. And so in essence, we have a large swath of Christianity, of Christians that would say like, I've made Jesus my savior, but not my Lord. As if those two things were mutually exclusive. Like I can, I can just bifurcate. I can just separate those two things as if, as if they don't have to be the same. Essentially, it's saying to Jesus, hey, Jesus, save me from my sins, but stay out of my life. See you when I die. Which sounds like so callous when I say it that way, doesn't it? Like it sounds like, man, like that sounds so nonsensical because it is. I mean, that's absolutely crazy. It, it, makes, it makes no sense. How could somebody experience the overwhelming, life-changing love of God, be filled with the very Spirit of God and remain the same. That doesn't even make sense. Like, that, that's, that's, that's crazy. How could someone experience the life-changing power of God, be filled with the Holy Spirit, and never change their mind about anything, their will, their actions, and their behaviors? That, that is, that, that doesn't even make sense. In fact, that would outright discredit the claims of Christianity. Let me read you a, a quote by the author Brennan Manning. He says this, The greatest single cause of atheism in the world today is Christians who acknowledge Jesus with their lips, then walk out the door and deny him by their lifestyle. That is what an unbelieving world simply finds unbelievable. An unbelieving world knows enough to say, if you've experienced this amazing grace that we sing about, that if you've experienced this life-changing, overwhelming, irresistible power of the love of God, if, you've, if you truly have the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit living in you and you have not changed, that doesn't even make sense. It's what an un unbelieving world simply finds unbelievable. And Paul kind of writes this a little bit different to in his second or fourth subsequent letter to the same church. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, he says this, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. What does that mean? It means this, that if you are in Christ, it's not like, well, I've made him Savior, but I haven't made him Lord. It means that he saves you from your old way of life, and he is now Lord over your new life in him. It means that he saves you from your old way of life, but he doesn't, he doesn't just leave you there. He is now Lord over your new life in him. Church, can I just remind you that we are not born again and then left as orphans. We're not, we're not born again. We don't just come out, yeah, I didn't make Jesus my Savior, but I haven't, I don't know, I did 15, 20 years ago. I haven't, even, I haven't looked back. I have no idea. I haven't gone to church since then, but I'm saved, hallelujah, by the blood of Jesus, right? He does not, we're not born again and then left as orphans. We are filled with the Holy Spirit. We are imparted a new identity. We are led by, we are empowered by to live out this new life that God has made for us. And it would be weird it would be weird if we weren't growing up into what we already are. That would be odd. And this is the point that Paul's making. He's like, guys, look, what are you, 
What are you doing? It's time to grow up. It's time to grow up. And he gives two different marks of spiritual maturity. And we can read it here in the Bible. He says, the first one, first mark of spiritual maturity is your diet, what you eat. And it's kind of weird. I'll read it for you in verse two. He says, I gave you milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. Indeed, you are still not ready. Which begs the question, okay, he talks about milk and meat, milk and meat. What's the difference between milk and meat? I, I wanted to give you meat, but you weren't ready for it, so I, I just fed you milk, and, and you're still not ready for it. What's the difference between milk and meat? Well, here's the thing. One, you drink. The other, you chew. One, you drink. The other, you chew. It is one thing to drink a glass of milk. It is another thing to cut up, chew up, and swallow a steak. Those are two very different things, are they not? So, what does this have to do with what Paul's talking about in the Corinthians? Essentially, he's saying that, like, Paul seems to judge spiritual growth not by knowledge, but by application. So he's saying, like, I know you guys are having great Bible studies. I know you're learning all kinds of things. I know some of you even memorized my last letter. That's great, and all those different things. I'm just telling you, you haven't applied what I've already told you. And so I'm not measuring my, your spiritual maturity based upon the amassing of knowledge. I'm actually basing your spiritual maturity based upon how much you've applied it, how much you chewed on so that you can digest it. It is one thing to sip on things that teach our minds and stimulate our minds, it's another thing to chew on truth and apply it to your life. And this, this is what Paul is talking to the Corinthian church. He's like, y'all are sipping on knowledge. You're all sipping and reading and talking and having all these great conversations about spiritual things with spiritual people in spiritual places. And I'm telling you, I'm waiting for you to start chewing on truth, putting something into it, and allowing it to work from the inside out and change you. See, Paul, when he talks about growing up, he's saying that growing up means moving from what we believe to how we behave. And it, one dictates the other. James says it this way in James 1.22. He says, do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. James literally tells us that listening and not doing is self-deception. So amassing knowledge without applying it gives you a false sense of growth. Man, I'm... My fear, my concern as a pastor in, in this day and age is that knowledge is the new doing. Knowledge is the new doing. We think that amassing more information, more knowledge, is, is what the answer is. And Paul's saying amassing knowledge without applying it into your life gives you a false sense of growth. It's like, oh yeah, I'm growing. I've got all these things. I'm learning. I'm getting, that's great. And you should, and you should do Bible study. You should be getting into the word. I'm not negating any of that, but doing that without applying it into your life, doing it without allowing the, the mirror of the word of God to speak into your life gives you a false sense of growth. It's huge. Church, the, there's never a shortcut to spiritual growth that bypasses obedience. Obedience. 
ever. The bill of obedience always comes due. And either you pay it up front or you can push it off down the road and pay it later, usually with interest. But the bill of obedience for every single one of us comes due. Every single one of us. And I think if if I were to sum this part up, I think what Paul is saying to us is this. Stop sipping on knowledge and start chewing on truth. It's a big difference. That's the difference between milk and meat. One requires something of you to chew, to digest, to allow, to work in and through you. The other one is easy. You can sip on it. One brings strength and growth. And then he goes to the second mark of spiritual maturity. And this is a weird one. And this is where he kind of, like I said, he's not nice about this. And essentially the second mark of spiritual growth is your unity. Verse three, he says, you are still worldly. Imagine just reading this letter. You're the guy that has to read it. You are still worldly, talking to the Corinthian church, you know, because it was read out loud. For since there is jealousy and quarreling among you, are you not worldly? Paul's essentially saying, and this is huge, like jealousy, comparison, quarreling, gossip are dead giveaways to spiritual immaturity. He's saying like, you're quarreling, you're gossip, you've got all these things, you're, you're jealous of each other. Like that is what the world does. And then Paul asks this incredibly loaded question. In the end of verse three, I want you to just, just let that sit with you for a second. He says, are you not acting like mere humans? That's like crazy. That's a crazy question, isn't it? I mean, because like it flies in the face of our current culture that just says like, dude, I'm just a human. I'm only human. I'm only human. It's all I can do. I'm only human. And Paul I want you to catch, really, don't miss this. Paul is insinuating something here. He is insinuating to these, these, these Christians in Corinth that they are no longer merely human if they are in Christ. Essentially, church, let me, let me remind you, you have been filled with the Holy Spirit. Quit acting like everybody else. I say, why, why are you acting like mere humans? What do you mean? Are you saying I'm more than that? Yeah. God has put his super on your natural, which means you don't have to act like everybody else. It may be tempting and it may be easier, but, but Paul's like, it's time to grow up. It's time to grow up. And, and you're acting like everybody else. And growing up means walking according to the Holy Spirit that dwells within you that God has put his super on your natural and you are now spiritual, so be spiritual. And then, then Paul transitions to the next metaphor and he says this, the church is a garden and the goal is to grow fruit. The church is a garden and the goal is to grow fruit. And he says in verse five, I love that he, he doesn't say who, he says what. He says, what, after all, is Apollos? He doesn't say who is Apollos. He says, what, is after all, is Apollos? What is Paul? And that's him, Paul. What is Paul? 
Only servants through whom you came to believe as the Lord assigned each his task. I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God, don't miss it, but God has made it grow. And this goes all the way back to chapter one where we're talking about like celebrity pastors. He's reminding them again, stop looking at the gardener and start looking to the Lord of the harvest. It really doesn't matter. I don't care if it's if Cephas, you like Apollos, you like, you like Paul, you like, you like wh- whoever your celebrity pastor, like it better be more than a celebrity pastor. You, you should be looking to the Lord of the harvest. Every single person that has played a role in your life has played a different role in your life, but we all get to play a part in the harvest. And, and when the church, our church even, allows and celebrates people with different giftings to operate, then the harvest happens and fruit will grow. And this is what he's talking about when he talks about unity, that, they, that we have different gifts, but we're on the same team, which means that like prophets are not at odds with pastors. And it means that, that evangelists are not at odds with apostles. Like when the gifts of the Holy Spirit work in the midst of the local church, then harvest happens and fruit grows. We are, have different gifts, but we are all on the same team. So I want to encourage you, do what God has given you to do. Walk in the gift that God has given you to do. And I would really encourage you in this. Do not do it to get praise from people. Because if you do something for the praise of people, then you will die by their criticism. If, all, if you're hoping and waiting for, for someone to notice, well, you don't, I, just, I just want somebody to be, give me affirmation. If, you, if you're living for the affirmation of people, you will die by their criticism. I want to encourage you, church, do what God has given you to do. We live for the audience of one. And he says this in so many words. He's like, your reward is not given to you according to what gift you have. Oh, I don't have an upfront gift, or I've got this, or oh, it's not as great as other people's gifts. He's like, that's not how God assesses rewards. He says, your reward is given to you according to how well you work what you have been given. Which means it may not be, it may be different and not quite as cool or, or out, you don't have a microphone behind it and all of those things. Do what God has given you to do. Work the gift that God has given you to work and you will be rewarded according to how well you work the gift that God has given you. Not, uh, not somebody else. God hasn't called you to be somebody else. He's called you to be you. So work the gift. Be spiritual. So that one day the Lord of the harvest will say, well done, good and faithful servant. And then he, the last metaphor that, that he uses is this. The church is a temple, and the goal is to be built up. The church is a temple, and the goal is to be built up. And he says in verse 16, Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple, and that God's Spirit dwells in your midst? You could just hang verse 16, put it on a mug. I mean, that, if you, we could just live in that reality. Like, don't you know that you yourselves, the church of Jesus Christ, are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in your midst? That's huge. Absolutely mind-blowing. What a great reminder. And then he goes on in verse 10. He says this, By the grace God has given me, I laid a foundation as a wise builder and someone else is building on it. But each one should build with care for no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. 
Paul outlines is like, the church has to be built on the right foundation and the church has to be built with the right materials. So when I talk about the foundation, the church has to be built on the right foundation. When Katie and I were first looking to, to buy a house, we, um, we couldn't afford much. And so when you, when, you, when you can't really afford much, you start looking at houses that are really old. Remember, really old houses we, we would look at, ones that are like built like in the 1800s. You don't understand what I'm talking about. Ones that are like sitting on the market for like three years. I'm like, I have no idea. And my wife's like, it's got so much character. And so I'm like, babe, I don't know how to fix anything. Like, I can barely flush a toilet, right? And we're buying a house from the 1800s. Like, I don't even know what this is. And so we went to this one house, I remember, and we, we had our, our realtor with us. And so um, I was like, okay, we're looking around. She's like, oh my gosh, it's so cute, it's so cute. And I'm like, yeah, it's nice, it's cool, it's great, it's updated, cool. And I'm like, and so I'm like, well, does it have a basement? And, the, and she goes, mm. and you know what's always bad when, like, the realtor goes, mm. I'm like, well, I, I think we should probably look. And so we, we open up the, the door to go down into the basement. It's like, it's like the beginning of a horror movie. You know what I mean? Like, you're just like, I've seen this one before. Why are we doing this? So we go down into there, and, of course, there's no, like, electricity, because 1800s. And so you have a flashlight. I, I think it was a flashlight. We, we walk down in there. And we go down, and it's a crawl space, very, very, very low. And I'm like, this is weird. It's dirt floor, and there is a legit stream running through the entire basement. A stream, like with a little, like, dog-like bend. It was really cute. Like, you could have fished in it. Like, it was just like, it was going through the entire basement. And I was like, huh, it hasn't even rained recently. That's weird. I'm like, this is just like a water feature? This is cool. This is like a water feature? And, um, and, and so our, our realtor is like, um, so there may be, I'm pretty sure there's some significant foundation issues. And of course you're like, what does that have to do with anything? Have you checked out the, I mean, up there they've got like, I mean, mar I think those are marble countertops up there. That's awesome, right? Like they just updated that. What, is, what, what does a foundation have to do with anything? Let me just tell you, foundations don't matter until they matter. And when they do, they really matter. Amen? All of a sudden, the thing that you're like, what does that have to do with anything? That's just like a river runs through it. I saw that movie. Like, you know what I mean? Like, it just, this is, this is not a big deal. Like, this is, this is so, so, so small and tiny compared to that. I mean, the, the kitchen, if you check that out, there's so much room up there. I don't know if any of it can be heated, but it's awesome. Like, and all of a sudden, the thing that you didn't think that really mattered that much matters. It's the only thing that, that, that matters. And when you build your foundation of your faith, on something other than the solid rock foundation of Jesus Christ, you are on shaky ground. When you build the foundation of your faith on a person, a preacher, a personality, when you build the foundation of your faith based upon a worship style or a concert or even a local church, I'm just going to warn you, people will fail you. I will fail you. Churches will disappoint you. You're going to be like, man, I just, I thought it was going to be more. I thought it was going to be this. I thought it was going to be that. And it wasn't. And I'm disappointed in all this. When you build the foundation of your faith on anything other than Jesus Christ, it will get yanked out from underneath you. You will have a river running through it. And when the rains come, and they do, and when the storm blows, and it does, and when the devil comes to huff and puff and blow in your house, the only thing that matters is the thing that matters. And when it matters, it matters. It really matters. Amen? 
And we wonder why we have so many Christians that have shipwrecked their faith is because they don't have their solid rock foundation on Jesus Christ. It's based upon, well, I have this trust in this leader or this person, this place, this. I thought that this, but they hadn't built the bedrock of their faith on the rock that is Jesus Christ. Amen? And this is what he's talking about. He's like, you better have a strong foundation and he says it in chapter two. We just read it last week. He says that I have resolved to know nothing except Jesus Christ and him crucified. We are to build our lives, to build the church of Jesus Christ on nothing less than Jesus Christ and him crucified. That's it. So what is the foundation that you are building your life on? What is the foundation that we build the church on? Let me warn you, it is so much easier to build on sand it's much harder to build on rock that is Jesus Christ because building a foundation on Jesus requires you to be willing to do today what others will not do so that you can have tomorrow what others won't have. It's that whole obedience that comes due, that we are called to do today what others will not do so that we can have tomorrow what others won't have. It's the hard work of building on the solid rock because when those storms come and, this, and the winds rage, we better have something to stand on because all of a sudden, what didn't matter matters and it really matters. And then he says, not only build on the right foundation, he says, you need to build with the right materials. And then he goes on, he says this in verse 12, if anyone builds on this foundation using, then he starts naming things off, gold, silver, costly stones, or wood, hay, or straw, their work will be shown for what it is because, when that, because the day will bring it to light. And then he talks about fire and he says, it will be revealed with fire and the fire will test the quality of each person's work. What in the world is he talking about? He's like, make sure you build on the foundation of Christ, but then as you build the temple, as you build the building, as you build the people, the family of God, the, as you plant into the family of God, he starts talking about gold, silver, wood, hay, and straw. You better, you know, you better pick the right materials to build with. What's the difference in some of those? Well, some of them you can find in your backyard. Wood, hay, straw, stubble, you can find that in your backyard. You can go to Home Depot. You can build with wood hay. You can, you can, you can build a thatch hut. You can build a stick-built house, all of those types of things. And then there are other things that he mentions that you have to mine for. You have to dig deep. Gold, silver, costly stones. And the Corinthian church had obviously been trying to build God's church on worldly wisdom. Hay, wood, straw. Did you know that you can try to build a church on something other than godly wisdom, than the Word of God? Did you know you can try to build a church on the wisdom of this world? You can preach and actually draw a crowd on pop psychology. You, you, can, you can build a church, you can draw a crowd by, by preaching self-help messages, and you can build a church by having a smoking awesome concert that mentions Jesus' name. 
Like you can, you can try to build a church on worldly wisdom. And Paul is reminding the leaders of the church in Corinth. He's like, you are not called to draw a crowd. You are called to build the church, the temple of God. Do you not realize that the presence of God is in your midst? And Paul is saying, you can find wood, hay, and stubble in your backyard. You can go to Home Depot and get it. It's not hard to pick it up. Everybody builds with that. But you are called to build the temple of God. And you better be using something of better quality than that. You better be using silver and gold and precious jewels. But you're going to have to dig for them. Which means, and I think what he would say to us, is you're going to have to dig down deep. And not dig down deep into yourself and what you think. Dig down past yourself. Dig down past religion. Dig down past pop psychology. Dig down past your preferences. Dig down past your opinions. Dig down past worldly wisdom. Dig down past if it feels good, then it must be right. Dig down past the wisdom of this world and build your life on the church. Build the church on the rock, which is the word of God. Because when the day of judgment comes, only God's word will last. And, and quite honestly, like as the primary leader, builder of this church, here, this local body of believers, I, I refuse to waste our time on anything other than the word of God. I, I refuse. And because when I stand before God one day, he won't be asking me, did you make my people happy? Did you draw a big crowd? Did you make them laugh? Not every once in a while. Did you tell them what they wanted to hear? No. But he might ask me, did you help my family to grow up? Did you help my garden to grow fruit? Did you help build my church on the right foundation that is Jesus Christ? And did you build them up with the right materials, the word of God. And he might ask you, did you grow up? Did you grow fruit? Did you build your house on the rock of Jesus? Did you build yourself up in the word? Because he says, the church is a family, and the goal is to grow up. The church is a garden, and the goal is to grow fruit. And the church is a temple, and the goal is to be built up. Why don't you stand with me? He says in, um, in verse 18, and... Uh, like I said, chapter 3, he's not nice about it. He says, do not deceive yourselves. And this is where I think many of us could rest in today. He says, do not deceive yourselves. If, if any of you think you are wise by the standards of this age, catch this, you should become fools so that you may become wise. Let me say that one more time. If any of you think that you are wise by the standards of this age, you should become fools so that you can become wise. 
What is Paul saying? All of this, all of what he's talking about, all of what he's preaching about, all of what he's writing to these people that he dearly loves, it all boils down to humility. And he's saying, it's really difficult to teach someone who thinks that they know it all. It's really difficult to teach the word of God to somebody that's just wondering like, well, I'm okay with accepting it as long as it lines up with what I think. I mean, that's fine if this book is good, but we can talk about it and preach about it and all those types of things. But if I, if I disagree with it, then it's, then I'm, it's gone. I'll just rip that out. I don't, want to, I, don't want to, I don't want to see that. It's really difficult to teach someone, to change someone, when they're just waiting for the Word of God to line up with their opinion or their own preference. And I think what Paul is just reflecting back to this Jesus followers in Corinth, he's saying the only way to knowledge is to confess your own ignorance. That's true, isn't it? The only way to learn is to be like, I don't know. Because you don't need to learn if you already know. I already know. I already have it all figured out. I'm, I, I've, I've held on to this belief for the past 16 months, and so it's rock solid, even though this has stood the test of time. And, I, and Paul is like, you got to be a fool in order to become wise. Come to the point of confessing your own ignorance so that you can learn. Allow God to teach you, to make you, mold you, break you, and make you to be more like him. Learn from him, but not according to the wisdom of this world, but through the foolishness of the gospel. And Paul says to you, to me, to the Corinthian church, he's like, you need to become a fool. You need to grow up. It's time. You need to grow fruit. It's time. You need to build yourself up in the word of God because church, you have been filled with the very spirit of God. Don't act like the world. Be spiritual. So Lord, I pray for each and every single one of us today as we're wrestling with our own flesh being offended by this word. <laughs> God, I pray that we would just take a chance on you take a chance on saying, like, maybe I'm mistaken. Maybe I do have a thing or two to learn. Holy Spirit, I pray that, that you would do what only you can do and change the heart of a person. And so we open ourselves up to the leading of you. Lord, we want to be spiritual. We want to be filled with, led by, and empowered by the Holy Spirit in our life. And so, God, I pray that you would just speak to each and every single one of us. And so, Lord, what is the Holy Spirit speaking to me about today? And I lay that down at the altar. God, I pray that you would allow us to be able to be moldable, teachable. That we would grow up, grow fruit, and be built up according to your word. In Jesus' name, let's worship.